You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done. By being <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. <laughs> and I want to tell you, when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're an intellect, you love books. But for me, I'm sorry, I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had to be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's going to steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. That is the story of how you got to this desk. And so you faced insults here that were shocking to me. Well, actually not shocking. But you are here because of that kind of love. And nobody's taken this away from me. So you got five more folk to go through. <laughs> five more of us. And then you can sit back and let us have all the debates. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a well-charted Senate floor because it's not going to stop. They're going to accuse you of this and that. Heck, in honor of your person who shares your birthday, you might be called a communist. But don't worry, my sister. Don't worry. God has got you. And how do I know that? Because you're here. And I know what it's taken for you to sit in that seat. Today, you're my star. You are my harbinger of hope. This country is getting better and better and better. And when that final vote happens and you ascend onto the onto the highest court in the land, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, will be better because of you. Thank you. I am glad to be in the house of the Lord. If you are happy to be here, you ought to give God a hand clap of praise. You ought to be on your face, hands and feet shouting. You ought to give God all the glory, honor, and the praise. The first time I ever stood in this pulpit, I believe I told you all that my grandmother's church, Zion Baptist Church in Brunswick, Georgia, back when my aunt used to direct the choir every morning, the choir would march in singing, I'm glad to be in the service one more time. And he didn't have to let me live. No, he didn't have to let me live, and that is my testimony. God knows the devil tried to take me out twice, but God, in a praying church. I'm standing here before you today, giving honor to God who's the head of my life. I give thanks for the privilege of standing before you this morning. I want to thank Bishop Watts in his absence for allowing me, yes, to minister on this day and his prayers and support. And between Bishop Watts and my sister, who is a doctor, I wasn't allowed to do anything but sit down and be healed. <laughs> and it must be because they both went to Yale. They think they know it all. <laughs> I want to thank Deaconess Miller and the Diaconate Ministry 
who sent cards and phone calls as well to the Jones family. I received your card. I thank you all so much. And Elder Martin, Lord God, Elder Martin. <laughs> she called, hello, my sister, let us pray. <laughs> and then she immediately went in. And when she said amen, I picked myself up off the ground and haven't had a problem since. <laughs> I was back at work the next day. I am truly grateful and prayerful for a supportive church family, and I can't thank you enough. I won't be before you long. Our text this morning comes from Exodus chapter 3. It's already been read in your hearing. Right now, I'm just going to read verses 13 through 14 from the New International Version, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. And it reads, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is, who, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Let us pray. And now let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated in the house of God. So this past Easter was fun. It was the first Easter I've spent on land since 2019. And I was at Deaconess Miller's house, and we had a great conversation over dinner, ranging from the Netflix show Squid Game to public versus private school. And for some reason, later on in the evening, we all ended up singing, I'm a little teapot. <laughs> and no, we were not drunk. And so we know Deaconess Miller loves her games. We played one game at the dinner table that required each of us to answer a question pulled from a jar of random topics. And the question I received was, what celebrity would you want to be for a day? And my initial thought was, nobody. Because in this age of social media, the more I learn about celebrities, the less I want to know about celebrities. But then Judge Katanji Brown Jackson came to my mind, and she had just been confirmed to the Supreme Court, but the residual intense emotions her confirmation hearings invoked were still fresh. Now, I didn't watch the Senate hearings because I already knew what was gonna happen. I knew it was gonna be brutal, and watching it would only trigger me. And based on the news articles and social media, my suspicions were correct. They came at her hard. It was nasty. Judge Jackson holds two degrees from Harvard, where she graduated with honors, holds more qualifications than any other justice presently sitting on the Supreme Court, yet she was still talked down to like she's the help. And the whole time she sat there and took a verbal beating in front of her parents, husband, children, and the world, she sat there and took it. I read this one Facebook post by a lady named Ashley Aldridge that said, if you're a black woman in corporate America, academia, entertainment, even working at McDonald's, 10 times out of 10, you've had a Katanji Brown Jackson experience at least once in your life. I'm exhausted for her and for us. 
We watched our lives play out on TV all weekend, the survey says. We are not crazy. These folks try to talk to us and play us like we're stupid, and we just have to grin and bear it. Turn my mic down. Meanwhile, we're holding more degrees and credentials than the ones questioning ideas, value, experience, and worth. It's tiring. Take a deep breath and exhale, sisters. We are qualified, and we are more than enough. I see you, queens, end quote. After days of being belittled and derided came this beautiful moment from Senator Cory Booker, where he took the time to affirm Judge Jackson. He reminded her of who she is and how God sees her. The media wanted desperately to portray her as the angry black woman, but Senator Booker reminded her of all that she truly is, a Christian, a mother, a wife, and more than qualified. No matter what we achieve in life, we can all stand a little reminder that we are qualified and we are called. In watching Judge Jackson, I thought about encounters I've had with senior officers who thought it was their appointed duty to break me. And to tell the truth, some of them nearly did, especially the one I was dealing with when I first arrived across that river 11 years ago. That lady was crazy. But I got through that situation with the aid of my family. Now, people assume because I'm a preacher's kid that I naturally relate better to my father. And while I am his clone, I am his exact twin, and I do seek his counsel on a lot of things, especially men. When it comes to being a woman in ministry, specifically a black woman in military ministry, I relate better to my mother and her experiences as a black woman in corporate America. Also, men, you can back me up. When you are the father of girls, it doesn't matter how saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost you may be. When anyone messes with your girls, sometimes salvation goes out the window. There are some things we have to let my mother handle because daddy, when it comes to his girls, his collar comes off and the streets come out. That's just how it is. <laughs> and that is why I often seek my mother's advice because I don't want to visit my daddy in prison. <laughs> but nearly everything I've experienced, my mother has too. And because she has had these experiences, she has served as a mentor not only to me and my sisters, but my cousins and many others as well. And over the years, she has shared many words of wisdom with me. And this morning, I want to share one of the most powerful words she's ever given. Now, this morning's text is a familiar one. It's Moses at the burning bush, and he has just received his call from God. Prior to this moment, Moses had been living as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, or the prince of Egypt. Moses' story is interesting in that he was a Hebrew ethnically living as an Egyptian nationally. And Moses was well aware of his Hebrew identity. In Exodus 2, we learn when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in the river, Moses' sister Miriam, being the excellent negotiator that she is, convinced Pharaoh's daughter to allow Moses' biological mother to nurse him. She also worked it out so that not only would Moses' mother raise him, but she was also compensated for it. Everyone is happy. Moses' life is spared, his mother and family remain in contact with him and are well taken care of. God was working in Moses' life from the beginning. He wasn't supposed to be alive. 
Pharaoh declared that all Hebrew male babies were to be killed at birth. But the Hebrew midwife Shifra and Pua feared God and refused to obey the orders of Pharaoh and kill the Hebrew babies. God already had a plan in action. As the story goes, even though Moses was raised as royalty, he was unhappy with the, how the Egyptians treated the Hebrews. Remember, even though Moses was raised as an Egyptian royalty, he knew what his real identity was, Hebrew. When Moses witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, Moses killed that Egyptian. Later, he sees his Hebrew brothers fighting and goes to break up the fight, but he doesn't get the reaction he expected. He finds out what his Hebrew brothers really think of him. They considered him a sellout and a hypocrite. Moses had been raised in the palace with the enemy as opposed to slaving away in the sun with the rest of them. Moses wasn't from the streets. How could he relate to them? So instead of appreciating what Moses was trying to do, they called him out for his hypocrisy. And as the story goes, Grandpa Pharaoh finds out about the murder Moses has committed and wants to kill his adopted grandson. I guess Grandpa Pharaoh never really accepted Moses into the family. When Moses killed that Egyptian, he confirmed Pharaoh's worst fears. The Hebrews would one day rise up and overthrow Egyptian rule. This can't happen, and thus Moses was exiled into the wilderness. Now when we think about the wilderness, we think of the desert, which is a type of wilderness, but the ocean, forest, even a tropical island, and even your home can be a wilderness especially during the pandemic when we couldn't go anywhere. It felt like a type of exile. Now being active duty, I've spent much time in many wildernesses all over the world, whether in the desert, the woods, out to sea, or in my own home. One thing all wilderness have in common is the lack of distractions. You try to have some type of road routine. Mine was working, exercising, eating, sleeping, reading, and playing games. I played so much spades, dominoes, and cars that I was briefly addicted and required an intervention. The pilots taught me how to blackjack and every day, hit me, hit me, hit me. They had to pull the chaplain away. Like, come on chaps, you've had enough, let's go. But in the wilderness, we are free from distraction. A cell phone signal is rare. Sometimes the internet works, sometimes it doesn't. Life, for the most part, is still and quiet in the, wilderness, in the wilderness. It's easier to think when you are free from distraction. So I understand why God spoke to so many people in the wilderness. God has your full, undivided attention. Why do you think Jesus always had to go away to solitary places? He needed to be clear of distraction. And this brings me to my first point. It is while Moses is in the wilderness that he has an exile encounter with God. He had to get away from the distractions and get into isolation to hear clearly. And considering the task he was about to be given, he needed to be sure he was hearing from God clearly. Now the story goes, while he's tending his father-in-law's sheep, Moses sees a burning bush. Now a burning bush in the desert is not unusual, but what made this burning bush unusual is that the fire was not consuming the bush. This was bait to get Moses' attention. Taking the bait, Moses went in to check it out. But as he moved in, the Lord told him not to come any closer and to remove his shoes because this is holy ground. 
Once Moses was in a complete posture of humility, that is when he was able to receive his commissioning call from God. Forty years have now passed since Moses fled Egypt. Moses is not the same person that he used to be. He had gone from a prince to a pauper. He tried to be a mediator, but ended up being a murderer. And thus he went from Egypt into exile. Now, if I was Moses, I would be experiencing an identity crisis at this point. I'm a Hebrew, but the Hebrews reject me. I was raised as Egyptian royalty, but they have rejected me too. Who am I? Where do I belong? And what is my purpose? Well, God answers those questions. Moses didn't realize it, but God had been grooming him for, this, for, for his entire life for this moment. It was no coincidence that Pharaoh's daughter found Moses. It wasn't happenstance that Moses grew up with the royal family. To defeat the enemy, you must know the enemy. Well, Moses had received an up-close-and-personal education into the life of the enemy. He lived with him. And I don't think it was in God's plan for Moses to commit murder, but God can still use our failures for good. The 40 years Moses spent in exile in the wilderness of Midian was preparation time for the 40-year journey he was about to lead the Hebrews on. It was necessary time because just because Moses was out of Egypt didn't mean Egypt was out of him. It takes time to unlearn some things. It took 40 years to get Egyptian ways and customs out of Moses' system, and it was going to take an additional 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelite system. You don't stay in bondage for 430 years and not somehow adopt the culture of your captors while forgetting your own culture. After 430 years in bondage, the Hebrews didn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob anymore. God had to raise up a prophet to lead the people out of physical and mental bondage. But who could God send? Who would answer the call? Exodus chapter 3 verse 9 says, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now Moses' calling isn't too different from any other prophet of God getting called. Moses didn't blindly accept the assignment. He had questions, which is completely understandable. He had already tried to stand up for his people once, and we see how that worked out. They didn't appreciate it. He nearly got killed by Pharaoh and ended up in exile. Now the Lord wants Moses to go back to Egypt and lead these people who have already rejected him once? Oh, I would have some questions too. So Moses asked, whom shall I say sent me? The Lord says, Say the God your fathers, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Moses still has questions. But what is your name? God says, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am sent me. Can I break this I am thing down for you? We're going to do a quick Hebrew lesson. In your Bibles, Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 is translated a couple of different ways depending on your translation. It may say, I am that I am, I am who I am, I am what I am, or I will be who I will be. In Hebrew, this phrase is called the tetragrammaton, 
or the divine name of God. In English, that is translated as Yahweh or Jehovah. Any Bob Marley fans in here besides me? Bob Marley was a devout Rastafarian, which was heard all throughout his music. You will often hear him refer to Jah, like in the song Exodus, when he says, Jah come to break down oppression, rule equality, wipe away transgression, set the captives free. Do we listen to Bob Marley up in here? That is because in the Rastafari tradition, Jah is a shortened form of the divine name, Yahweh or Jehovah. In the Jewish tradition, they will not say the divine name aloud. Anywhere in the Hebrew Bible where the sacred name is used, it is substituted with the word Adonai, which in English Bibles is translated as Lord and will be written in capital letters. Look at Exodus chapter three, verse 18. It says, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to them, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. Lord is capitalized because in the original Hebrew, the divine name Yahweh is being used. In the New Testament, in John chapter 8, when Jesus was in the temple and he said before Abraham was, I am, the people were prepared to stone him. Why? Because Jesus had spoken the divine name, which was a blasphemous thing to do. In John chapter 18, when the soldiers were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus once again responded with the divine name, I am. Everyone hit the ground when he said, I am, because he was saying the divine name. Jesus used the divine name in seven declarations about himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was, I am. The whole point of the divine name is God cannot be defined. You can't box God in. Remember, Moses had been raised and educated as an Egyptian. Egyptians worshiped many gods, and these gods have names and pictures, but the God Moses is talking to cannot be named, pictured, or defined. The Lord always has been and always will be from everlasting to everlasting. Don't try to define me or confine me. I am. God had it all worked out, but Moses still had questions. He asked God, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. <laughs> suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you, then what? The Lord then in chapter four took Moses through some exercises and miracles. He turned his rod into a serpent. Moses still had doubts. He gave Moses leprosy and then cured it. Moses still had doubts. He turned water into blood. And after all of this, you would think Moses would be confident and you would be wrong. After these multiple displays of miracles, Moses then says, this makes me laugh. I'm not a good public speaker. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I always crack up when I read that. <laughs> after all of that, that's your concern? <laughs> I don't speak good. <laughs> let me let you in on a little secret. God is well aware of how incompetent we are. <laughs> the Lord uses the weak 
to confound the strong. God doesn't judge by human standard. God looks at the heart. God created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Why do we try to convince God of what we can and cannot do? You know why? We don't want to do it, that's why. We're trying to run away from our assignment because it seems too hard. And here's the funny thing about running away. When we run away, we put ourselves in a self-imposed exile. And this brings me to my second point. God equips us to excel. We've already seen how God had been working out a plan in Moses' life from the beginning. God's favor had been on his life from his birth. Moses witnessed miracles, signs, and wonders, but it wasn't penetrating through his thick skull. That's our problem. Everybody wants to be used by God, but we also want to dictate how God should use us. It doesn't work that way. We are to submit fully to the process. When we try to control things, that's where we mess up. When Moses took matter into his own hands, rather than following the plan of God, he ended up in exile for 40 years. God is working out a master plan in our lives, but we must submit to the process and realize that God has set us up for success. And this brings me to my last point. God will send experienced elders to enlighten and encourage you. God knew Moses would need help. He knew that man couldn't talk right. And who better to help him than the guardians of the history and culture other people, the elders. God tells Moses in Exodus chapter three, verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come and you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God encouraged Moses to work with the elders Moses didn't have to do it alone. He needed help. He needed the elders. And the elders provided more than support and experience. They had been there all along going through the oppression. They never left. Therefore, they had what Moses did not have, credibility. Remember, Moses did not have the same experiences as the other Hebrews. He had been raised privileged. He needed the elders to co-sign him. We all need the elders to co-sign for us. So in the beginning of this sermon, I told you about the senior officers who were acting like Pharaoh towards me. I also said I turned to my family for guidance. And my mother told me this story. Years ago, the church my father was pastoring was hosting a revival, and near the end of the service, the evangelist for the evening called my mother to the front. Now, my mother doesn't like to be the center of attention. She is very comfortable in her role, and she will let you know that. So she is extremely uncomfortable with being called to the front of the church in front of everyone, but she cooperated. And when she got up there, the evangelist began to prophesy over her. He told my mother, when you go to work, every day you enter the building, say, I am sent me. 
Now she was uncertain about it, but she decided to try it. And when she did, instantly, the atmosphere began to change in her workplace because her attitude had changed. And so my mother encouraged me to do the same. She said, Camille, before you enter work, say, I am sent me. And this became my mantra. To this day, before I do anything that is intimidating, I boldly proclaim, I am sent me. And I say it repeatedly until I feel it in my spirit. Saying I am changes everything. So God made Moses return to Egypt, the place he had left as a fugitive. He was now returning as a freedom fighter. When I arrived across that river 11 years ago, this place was Egypt to me. I was a sheep being led to the slaughter, and I was attacked mercilessly. Oh, it was nasty and brutal. When I first got here, I was told, you're not gonna make it. And then they actively worked to get rid of me. I was told, you're probably not gonna get promoted. And I believed them when they said it. And if you would have told me 11 years ago that I would voluntarily return to this place, I would have told you in the most ungodly way possible how wrong you were. Yet I'm standing before you today, back in New London, Connecticut. Oh no, check this out. After being promoted twice, and I met the Vice President Kamala Harris, and the only reason why I'm here today is because I am Sydney. I just stopped by to tell you what my mama told me. Every time you have to remain cool when others try to make you look like a fool, say I am Sydney. When you have to remain silent while being attacked by a tyrant, say I am Sydney. When you have to stand alone during attack, when others are too cowardly to have your back, say I am sent me. Come on now, for the years of silent tears, after being set up for failure by your tears, I am sent me. When regulation is used to justify discrimination, say I am sent me. When you feel the need to hide your crown because it makes others frown, say I am sent me. When you've been rejected while lesser qualified colleagues get selected, say I am sent me. For still believing you could, despite the naysayers that said you never would, and actively set up obstacles in the events that you thought you should, say I am sent me. For those who have gone before you, sacrificing mental and physical health for your generational success and wealth, say I am sent me. Who is I am? He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world. He is the door of the sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true vine. If God has called you, then God has also equipped you. You don't have to seek anybody's validation or anybody's accreditation. If God be for you, who can stand against you? The God I serve is undefeated. He can't be killed. He can't be stopped. His name is above all names, and he's worthy of all our praise. How do I know? Because I am sent me. Hallelujah.